As the Jews left Egypt and the Egyptians were bearing down upon them with the intent of wiping them off the face of the earth, at that climactic moment, Moses dramatically addressed the people and said, Do not be afraid. Stand still and watch the deliverance of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you this day. It's not easy to stand still and watch God work, especially when the most powerful fighting force in the world is rapidly approaching with anger in their eyes. Most of us have an innate tendency when sudden stress comes to do something. This part of our physical makeup. It's hardwired within our neurological system. The adrenal glands kick in and secrete adrenaline. And we're, we're ready to move. We're ready to fight. We're ready to react. That's not a bad thing. It's a protective mechanism. Sometimes it keeps us alive. That's the way our Creator made us. We were born this way. But often stresses are not sudden. They creep in slowly and stay a while. When a loved one dies, in the immediate aftermath of that death, the adrenals kick in, arrangements have to be made, details have to be taken care of, then comes the funeral. And we, by the grace of God, hold it together as we remember and honor our loved one. But then, in a couple of days or sometimes a couple of weeks, all of our friends eventually head back home to their own lives and their own routines. And for you, the quiet sets in. What then? Or think about a marriage. There's so much excitement in planning the wedding the reception, the honeymoon. But for some, as the years roll by, the excitement fades. And in the deep recesses of our mind, some wonder if they did the right thing in getting married in the first place. What then? Or maybe you witnessed all your friends get married and truly share their happiness but then as time goes by, you begin to consider or wonder if God is ever going to bring you that special someone. And you begin to ponder, I'm not getting any younger. What then? Our passage today addresses those issues, but with a broader context in mind. When we encounter chronic stresses... Long-term issues where we're placed in situations that wear us out. The tendency is to try to solve the problem ourselves. In the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if we find ourselves widowed and lonely, the tendency is to want to get remarried as soon as possible. If for no other reason, we need companionship. If we're unhappy in marriage, we secretly, privately think, if I could just get out of this marriage, then I could be happy again. If we're unmarried and unhappy about that status, we might muse, if I could just find the right person and get married, I would finally find contentment. 
In each of these cases, the Apostle Paul, writing under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, says, not so fast. Slow down. Remain as you are. In fact, he's going to say this five times between now and the end of the chapter. In verse 8, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that is good for them if they remain even as I. In verse 20, let each man remain in the condition in which he was called. In verse 24, brethren, let each man remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Verse 26, I think that it is good in view of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. And then in verse 40, but in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God, Paul writes. The answer to these kind of chronic problems, the kinds that Paul mentions here and others as well, is not necessarily changing the present circumstance. However appealing that might be in the midst of the loneliness of a single life, or the discontentment of a marriage that doesn't seem to be working. The answer, the solution, the prescription for these situations specifically and others in principle is to place your focus in life squarely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul will put it later on in this chapter, to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. I love that. To secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. To put it another way, instead of having as our highest priority getting out of the present uncomfortable circumstance, our highest priority should be to learn to be content in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. And the only way that that's going to be accomplished is for Christ to become the single most important person in our lives. Not our husbands, not our wives, not our children, not our friends, as important as they are. The single most important person with a capital P in each of our lives must be Jesus Christ. And we should focus in upon him like a laser. We should make every effort to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. In this passage today, Paul is not attempting to minimize the pain of loneliness or the heartbreak of a bad marriage. He's simply saying that running away from the present circumstance is not the answer. Have you ever heard the phrase, out of the frying pan and into the fire? That's what happens to us a lot of times when we make every effort to do whatever it takes to get out of this present circumstance because we're sure that if we do it, the other circumstance has got to be better instead of learning to be content in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. Change can either be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on whether or not that particular change is part of God's will for your life. The situations in this chapter are representative situations. They're representative of common interpersonal problems that people face, particularly Christians. Maybe you're not a widow or a widower today. Maybe you're not divorced Maybe you're not living in a bad marriage, or maybe you're not single hoping that you'll find the right person. But the principle remains the same. Whatever the problem, stay where you are until God moves you. 
In verses 8 through 9, as Paul begins this, he says, But I say to the married and to the widows that it is good for them to remain even as I. But if they do not have the self-control, let them marry. For it is better for them to marry than to burn. There are some things that are permissible that are not necessarily advisable. It is permissible for a widow to remarry. The Bible makes that clear. We'll see that in just moments. Sometimes, though, it's not advisable for a widow or a widower to remarry. And I'm going to be honest or frank with you. I'm always honest with you, but I'm going to be frank with you this morning. And I've got to tell you, I witness far too much of the time people rushing into a second marriage after they're widowed. And it seldom works out the way they want it to work out. The the key idea there is rushing into something. It's not sinful to get remarried after your spouse dies. But if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, if you're doing it just because you're lonely, and you think getting a new spouse is going to fill up this loneliness in my heart, I've got news for you. You're filling up that loneliness with the wrong person. Before you go seeking another person to assuage that loneliness that you might have, Make sure that the hole that's in your heart is filled up first with Jesus Christ. He's the only person that can fill that hole. That's a God-sized hole that's in your heart. And no other human being can fill it as much as you might think that they can. So in this case, there's there's got to be anything wrong, particularly with getting remarried. But Paul says, listen, you'd be wiser to remain just as I am. The term that Paul uses here is kalos, not agathos. Agathos is a word we use for, it's a word translated good that is typically used for good of intrinsic value. Kalos is a more relative term. So it might be better translated here, better. But I say to the married and to the widows that it is better for them if they remain even as I am. Or as one translator put it, It might be, well, the best thing for them to stay single. Paul's single when he writes this. As we discussed briefly last week, the nature of Paul's singleness has long been discussed. Eduardo Ahrens wrote in a journal article, In order to be ordained a rabbi, the law required that the candidate be married. And if Paul was ordained, it follows that he must have been married. Well, Perhaps, I'm not sure we can make it that tight. But if he was married, let's just assume that he was at one time. What happened? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. The two most common conclusions that commentators come up with are that she died. His wife died early on. He was a widower. Possible, very possible. Or another possibility that's come up is that his wife divorced him when he converted to Christianity. Either way, though, we don't know. What we do know is that he's single. When he writes this, and Paul tells the widows and the single people here, the unmarried, to stay as they are. It's better for you if you stay as you are. At the very least, it's better for you that you stay as you are until that, that vacuum of loneliness in your soul is filled up with someone that can really handle it. Otherwise, you're asking for all kinds of problems. When you ask another human being to do something that he or she is not capable of. Francis Schaeffer said in a book called True Spirituality, one of the best books I think Francis Schaeffer ever wrote, he said many fine Christian marriages end up being shipwrecked because one spouse or the other spouse eventually one day finds out that their spouse is not perfect. And then instead of 
recognizing that with some sort of objectivity, they tended to try to destroy the marriage. And Schaefer had a good idea. He said, look in the mirror yourself, and you'll realize you're not perfect. There are two imperfect people in that marriage, not just one. And neither one of those people can, can be the center of your life. Only Jesus Christ can be the center. No other human being has it in them to do it because we're all fallen. So when we ask our wife or our husband to be the center of our life, we're asking them to do something that is doomed to failure. Now, if Jesus Christ is the center of your life, and then your wife or your husband is slotted in right underneath that, or your son or your daughter or your grandchild, then it might work. But not when you put any other human being in first place. One P.S. to that real quickly about the Apostle Paul. Some ask after last week's lesson, what about Jesus? Wasn't Jesus a rabbi? Are you saying Jesus was married? A nice try, but that's not what I'm saying. Jesus was called rabbi. He allowed himself to be called rabbi. I believe the Apostle John allowed himself to be called rabbi. But there's no indication that Jesus was an official rabbi. Rabbi was the title of dignity given by the Jews to their doctors of the law and their distinguished teachers. So while he was called rabbi, I don't believe that he was an officially ordained rabbi like the Apostle Paul was. So no... I'm not saying that Jesus was married, no way, shape, or form. If we skip from these verses to the very end of the chapter, in verses 39 through 40, do that with me if you would. Paul brings up this topic again in almost a bookend fashion. And he says, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier or more content if she remains as she is. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Paul's saying, yes, a widow can remarry. And God has it in his plan for some to do so. Not all, but some. The only restriction he places upon this activity here is that the new spouse must be a believer. Well, that's the restriction for anyone, any believer getting married. In verse 9, the issue in remarriage was an inability to control sexual desires. It's better in that case to remarry than to participate in sex outside of marriage with the negative ramifications that were discussed in the previous chapter. So that's why he says in verse 9, if they don't have self-control, then let them marry. And he's talking about widows in this particular case. For it's better for them to marry than to burn. The Talmudic rabbis from the 3rd century on interpreted this phrase, it's better for them to marry than to burn, as meaning to burn in hell. In other words, if they had sex outside of marriage, they were going to hell, they were burning in hell. But that's hardly the context here. The burning is a metaphorical burning, a burning with passion. And that's why some of of your translations might even say something like that. Rather than burning with passion or unable to control sexual urges and misuse sex, it's preferable to marry in that situation. But I want you to see that's an accommodation, not necessarily what's desired. It's an accommodation to our own sin. Not what is necessarily desired. 
So that's the negative reason, I'll say, for a widow becoming married. But there's also a positive reason for staying single. And that is to devote oneself entirely to serving the Lord. If a person is married, rather, their attention is divided. If single, there's no spouse to please, as the Apostle Paul will later put it in this chapter. So undivided attention to God is more likely to be a reality. I'm not saying that married people can't have undivided attention to God. I'm just saying it's more difficult. And I'm saying it's more difficult because Paul says it's more difficult. And we'll cover that next week, not this week. The chapter's too long. The rest of the chapter's too long to cover in one session. But these are Paul's words. We don't want our attention to God to be undivided. So that's his message to the widows. There are other places when he talks to the widows. For example, in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, he seems to say that if a widow is over 60 years old, that seems to be the dividing line for the Apostle Paul, that it would be wiser for her to stay in the situation that she's in. Again, it's not a hard and fast rule. These are preferences, the Apostle Paul says. I love the way he does it in verse 40. But in my opinion, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. That's Paul giving you a little wink. Of course he has the Spirit of God. This is the Word of God. But rather than issuing this by way of command, like he did in verse 7, Yet I wish that all men were even as myself, I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in another and another in that. Verse 6, But I say this by way of concession, not command. In that passage, he was not commanding that a husband and wife separate themselves from each other with regard to sexual intimacy for prayer meaning, he's saying, but if that's what you want to do, that's okay. There's not, nothing wrong with that. So these are his words to the widow. Then in verses 10 and 11, Paul states that divorce should not be pursued as an option for unhappiness in marriage. Now that goes completely counterculture, so I want to say it again. Divorce should not be pursued as an option for unhappiness in marriage. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried, or else reconcile to her husband, and that the husband should not send his wife away. So if, for example, a wife leaves, she needs to stay in the situation that she's in. She needs to remain as she is. If she's divorced, remain as, as you are. Now, he's not condoning divorce. As a matter of fact, quite the opposite. Here's a command not to. Now, Jesus did give one out when it comes to divorce for a Christian couple, and that's marital unfaithfulness. Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, and Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, state this. He did not command divorce for marital unfaithfulness. The implication is that there ought to be forgiveness for marital unfaithfulness, if it's possible. Reconciliation, if it's possible. That would be God's desire. But if the reconciliation is not possible, then a believer can become divorced, according to our Lord. But only in this extreme circumstance. Of course, if one spouse is a serial adulterer, it would be extremely difficult to say that marriage. What I mean is, one affair after another, after another, after another, after another, there comes a time when a wife or a husband, either one, could rightly say, okay, 
it doesn't look like there's going to be any change here. And then Jesus did allow for it. But Jesus even says then it's an accommodation. They ask him, why did Moses allow us to get divorced? He said, well, this is why. Because some of your hearts are hard. And you won't be able to forgive. But we just need to be clear. Irreconcilable differences are not a biblically acceptable reason for divorce. Now, I suspect that some here this morning are thinking, well, I was divorced, or I am divorced, and it wasn't for adultery. And now I'm either still single, or I'm remarried, or my spouse is now remarried. Well, what am I to do? Remain as you are. That's what you're to do. Remain in whatever situation you are right now. Don't compound the problem like doing like some people have done, and that's to leave their current spouse. Because they realize, well, I didn't get a a legitimate divorce last time. Maybe I need to get out of this one and be single. No, all you did was compound the problem. Don't be silly. Remain as you are. You might give some attention if you are in that situation and you are married, remarried, and, and perhaps you're looking back on it now. And as you objectively analyze it, we'll say, well, I didn't have a biblical reason for divorce, but I'm remarried, I'm happy now, or I'm remarried, and I want to be happy now. My personal advice is that it would be a wise thing for the couple to go to the Lord and and recognize, listen, as it turns out, we didn't have a legitimate beginning, but we want to honor you with our lives now. And we've been told to remain in this situation, so help us. Help us to do it in the right way. That would be my advice. But that's not all Paul says about divorce. Because in 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to make it clear that a believer and an unbeliever should not be unequally yoked. Well, what happens if you have an unbeliever and an unbeliever in a marriage, if one of the two gets saved? Then what's that person to do? Well, I understand I'm not supposed to be unequally yoked, so is it okay for me then to divorce my unbelieving spouse? Well, you already know the answer to that. No, because you're supposed to remain as you are. Five times in this passage. This is a unique situation. Read verses 12 through 16 with me, if you would. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, she is, and she is content to live with him, let him not send her away. And that's the issue a certificate of divorce. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? This is pretty clear. Just because a person is married to an unbeliever, you can't use that as a cause for divorce. In fact, it's all the more reason to stay married so that you can be used of God to get the other party saved. And of course, God does the saving. I recognize that. But so that you can be used of God to help that other person. And the passage is probably referring 
to one who is saved after they were married, not to a believer who knowingly marries an unbeliever and then wants out of the relationship on a technicality later on, so to speak. It wasn't working out, so the, he or she says, well, the person's an unbeliever. Well, you knew that before you got into it. You know what? You can't get God on technicalities. He doesn't play that game. So don't even try. Verse 14 is a verse that challenges a lot of people, challenges me. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the believing, unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they're holy. So since this verse can be a little bit perplexing, I want to spend the last few moments we have here today on this verse, and then we'll continue with the passage next time. But there have been a wide variety of viewpoints among New Testament commentators for hundreds of years about this passage, about what it means for an unbelieving spouse to be sanctified by the believing spouse. One thing that it cannot be referring to is positional sanctification. This cannot be referring to salvation. Later in the same passage, it says, how do you know, know that you might be effective in saving that spouse or helping to save that spouse? So it is not talking about positional sanctification. We can get that off the table right away. So it must be speaking about some sort of experiential sanctification. The best understanding here is that while the sexual union of a believer with a prostitute is an unholy thing, that was the subject of the previous chapter, sexual intimacy within a marriage, even between believer and unbeliever, is a holy thing. It's a set-apart thing or sanctified thing, all the same word at least in the original language. So once again, if you take a believer and unite them with a prostitute, as Paul has previously said, that's very unholy. But in a marriage, in a marriage, a divine institution, something God set up, if you find yourself with a believer and an unbeliever in that marriage, the sexual intimacy within that marriage is not unholy. It's sanctified. It's Okay, it's good, even, between, even though it's between a believer and an unbeliever. The marriage may not be what it's supposed to be, but you're to remain as you are. And don't use the excuse, well, I can't have any relationship with this person physically because you know, they're an unbeliever. We'll go back to the first part of the chapter. All this ties in together. So you don't have an excuse for withholding yourself either. The offspring is not unclean, but set apart from unholiness as well. So it has nothing to do with saving the child. The, child are not, the children are not saved through the parents. The unbelieving spouse is not positionally sanctified through the parents. This is an experiential sanctification within the family unit. Paul's saying even if there's a believer and an unbeliever, you've got to stay there. It's still sanctified by God. And again, the concept here is most likely that this is someone who became saved after they were married, not necessarily somebody who went into it knowing that this was wrong to marry an unbeliever. However, that's still not an excuse to leave. We can't run away from every problem that we face and look for little technicalities so that we can be right before God. It's not the way it works. Stay where you are. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do. And in order to stay where you are, to remain where you are, and there will be a couple other factors here as the chapter rolls on, a couple other illustrations, you're going to have to turn to the Lord to stay where you are. You're not going to be able to grit your teeth or put your shoulder into the wind or to give a greater effort 
the Lord's going to have to do it for you. If you're a widow or widower and you're as lonely as you can be this morning, the loneliness is so intense, it's painful. And you know what I mean if you've been in that situation. Running and trying to find the first spouse that'll have you is not the answer. Now, if the Lord has it for you, and some people he does, then okay. But take your time. Take a deep breath. And turn to the Lord and fill that loneliness up with him first. And then if he still has somebody else for you, it'll be clear. You don't have to rush into it. He'll make it crystal clear. And then the union will be a source of contentment. But if not, it won't. And if you're in a particular situation where you are married, you can't use discontentment as an excuse to get out of that marriage. Stay where you are and fix it. Now, if the other party leaves, you can't do anything about that. That's not part of this passage today, but that's a reality. If your spouse leaves you, you can't do anything about that. Not really at the end of the day. Everybody's got to make their own decisions. But you can decide for you. And if you find yourself in a position of singleness... Remain as you are until the Lord opens the door. Don't bust the door open. Bad things are going to happen. The goal is, if you're widowed, stay single and grow in your relationship to the Lord. The goal is, if you're divorced, stay single and grow in your relationship with the Lord and you wait on Him to bring you the next spouse. I wouldn't even make an effort toward it. I wouldn't even date if I were you. Whether you're widowed or whether you're divorced, I would not even date after the death of a spouse for an extended period of time. My own personal opinion would be a couple of years if it was a good marriage. That's my own personal opinion. Because that's the much wiser thing to do. Don't rush into something and then not only damage yourself, but what about the other person? You're rushing into something while your, your heart is still filled with loneliness over your dearly beloved departed one. What do you expect of them? You're expecting them to do something they can't do. They can't be your deceased husband or wife. They can't be that person. And they certainly can't be God. So we need to go slowly with this. There is much more, of course, for this theme for today, Remain As You Are. But we'll cover that in the coming weeks. But the point is, don't attempt to solve uncomfortable situations simply by getting out of them. Wait for God. Stand still and watch the deliverance of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you this very day. 